I know that you probably want a mask similar to this one. Before you run out and get it, I want you to see how hard it is to get off. So you, you know, consider that. It does not go on and off easily. Okay. All right. We are starting a new series. We finished First Peter, Precious Faith. Pastor Greg did a great job last week. We are starting a series in the book of First Samuel called After God's Heart. This is the first message. You are right in on the front end. First Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. You can do it in your Bible or, or look up here. There was a certain man from Ramathim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. This is a little confusing. This is, this is going to be Samuel's ancestors, and Samuel is a priest and a judge. And did God break the rules? No. You, if you go in Chronicles, he's actually in the line of Aaron. He's a Levite in the line of Aaron. The Levites were not given property, so they had to live in all of the other tribes. So this guy lives in Ephraim, so he really is an Ephraimite, but he's also uh, from the, the line of Aaron, and he is a Levite. And so just I wanted that to be clear in case any of you had that question. All right. No one had that question. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> Pastors love to answer questions that no one's asking. So here we go. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas... The two sons of Eli were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Please don't answer that, Hannah. <laughs> Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting by his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. 
Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was just pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the Lord of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Would you mind standing with me as we pray? Lord, I believe you have a word that you want to speak to every heart and to this community today. Father, would you hide me behind your cross so that we can see Jesus, so that we can hear Jesus? Lord, I thank you in this encounter, everything was changed for Hannah. Even though outwardly everything was the same, her heart was changed. She had met with you. She had heard the word of the Lord. She had believed the word of the Lord, just like Mary did. And everything was changed because of that. Help us to hear your word, agree with your word, and be changed by your word, even this morning. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I've titled the message, After God's Heart, Hannah. But point one is an introduction to 1 Samuel. Usually, when you're beginning a book, you want to look at who wrote it and its history and who the original audience was. And so when you look for authorship of 1 Samuel, the truth is, we don't know who wrote it. It is an anonymous book. However, we know when it was written. 1 Samuel chapter 27 verse 6 says that this Philistine king named Achish gave the city of Ziklag to David. And, and then he says this, And the kings of Judah have owned it up until the present time. Okay? The kings of Judah have owned it. So whoever's writing this, whoever is this, the editor of 1 Samuel, he says that it, it mentions Ziklag. Ziklag was given to David, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah until this present time. Now, that actually dates the book. The, to say the kings of Judah means it has to be after the divided kingdom. It was always just Israel until Solomon's son Rehoboam. The kingdom split and then it became Judah and Israel. So the idea of the kings of Israel, this is about in 100 BC, the kingdoms split. 
And it says that Ziklag still belonged to the kings of Judah. Well, that only happened until 925 BC when Ziklag was lost to Egypt. So we've got about a 75-year window where the book of 1 Samuel was put together by an editor. Now, just so we understand... A lot of what he used was first-hand stuff from Samuel himself. In 1 Chronicles 29, um, 29 and 30, it says that Samuel himself uh, wrote a book called the Chronicles of Samuel the Seer. So that book is lost to us, but it was available at that time. And so some of what is recorded is directly from Samuel's own hand, but, but an editor put this together after the fact. And so that brings us to the question, uh, why is it called Samuel then? Why is it 1 Samuel and why is it 2 Samuel? If he's not the author, then why does the book bear his name? Great question. See how pastors work? They present a question and then they, they give the answer. Um, Samuel is the last judge in Israel. So there had been, the book of Judges is right before this. Samuel is the last judge, and we get his story in the first few chapters of Samuel, and then we get the story of the transition to Israel getting a king. Samuel is the one who anoints the first and second king of Israel. Both Saul and David are anointed by Samuel. So first and second Samuel is the story of this transition. It tells both the story of Samuel's own life, but also about the two kings that he anointed. It tells the story of Saul and the story of David. So then why this phrase... After God's heart. Why is that the name of our series? So, 1 Samuel 13, 14. God introduces David to Samuel. And interestingly, not by his name, but by a quality that he has. 1 Samuel 13, 14. The Lord says, I have sought after and found someone who is after my heart. This is the quality that, that has drawn the eyes of God. This is a quality that you and I can have as well. In fact, the Bible tells us that the Father, this is John 4.23, that the Father is seeking worshipers that worship him in spirit and in truth. He is, he, the, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So Jesus looks for sinners and he finds them and he gets them saved and he brings them into the family. And then the father wants, is seeking of believers to take them to the next level where they are worshipers, where they are all in, where they are living sacrifices, offering their lives in worship to God. Second, Second Chronicles 16.9, the, the prophet Hananiah is speaking to Asa, and he says this, The eyes of the Lord are going to and fro over the whole earth 
seeking for those who are wholly, wholeheartedly committed to Him so that He can reveal His strength in them and through them. Now here is the principle. When you and I give everything we are to God, God gives everything He is to us. When, when we hold back, when we are half-hearted, when we're kind of in, mainly in, partly in, when we withhold, God will withhold. Be, be, because, because God is waiting. He's searching for those that, that they're not playing games. They're not just trying to get something for nothing. They're, they're, they give themselves completely to him. So that he can give himself completely to them. Remember this, because this is where we're going today. All right, point two. A dark time in Israel. It's a dark time for, I've got three reasons why it was a dark time. One was anarchy in the land. Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the moral uh, situation in Israel. Everybody, it's relativism. Everybody's doing whatever they think's right. People are ignoring God and they're just doing their own thing. One of our speakers this week, Thursday morning, was my daughter Anne. And she spoke on Eve. And she said something that answered a question. That I, have, oh, that I have had. And it was just so wonderful to have this question answered. And she was talking about Eve and about how after she took the fruit in disobedience, that it's just human, we justify ourselves. Why is it so wrong that I ate this fruit? I have a genuine desire to eat fruit. God gave me that desire. This fruit was really, really looking good to eat. And I don't know why God needs to be so unfair as to make this boundary that I wouldn't eat that fruit. And so that's just the nature of sin. When we've sinned, we try to justify it. And so she, she tries to justify it to herself, but something's still not ringing true. So, she, so what she does is she offers that fruit to Adam. She promotes her sin to someone else. She wants him to eat it too. She wants him to say, because if he eats it too, then we're in this thing together. And then it's, 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 not, it's not sinful. It's not a big deal. I ate it. Adam ate it. And let's get together and say, this is the new morality. It's okay to eat fruit. It's okay that it's kind of unjust that God made that boundary. And, and, and so it's not enough for her. Part of her self-justification is she wants other people to do this. She wants to promote sin in other people so that she can, she can feel better about herself. And I'm like, oh my. She just gave me words to express. What I've known for a long time has gone on in Hollywood. Has anybody noticed in Hollywood 
They can take a great movie, and Hollywood makes a lot of really good movies, but they insist somewhere in that movie of having somebody sleep with somebody before they're married. They, they want to promote a new morality that is universal. They want you to say, everybody's doing it, this is okay, and so we got this movie that's not even about this, but we want you to know this is okay. We want you to know this is an unfair boundary that God has said, sex in marriage. That is unfair, it's not realistic, you're a sexual being, you have sexual desires, and it's just unfair. So we're going to make a new boundary, and we're going to make movies to express the new boundary. This is the new morality. It is okay. We we want you to know it is okay. This is okay. Why? It justifies them in their sin. And it tries to create this new morality. The devastation that we have experienced because of immorality in this land, the heartbreaks, the betrayals, the, the divorces that it's led to, the, the, the sexually transmitted diseases that it's led to, the fatherlessness that it's led to, all, all because we rejected that boundary and made a morality of our own. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If this is not a description of present-day America, I don't know what is. It was a dark time in Israel. One, because of anarchy in the land. Secondly, because of religion without godliness. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are now the lead priests. And they are very religious. But they are... um, They are living godless lives in their behavior. Those that are supposed to be closest to God are living ungodly, and it is creating confusion and license in the land. Um, Eli gets rebuked by God because he didn't remove them from the ministry. He he told them that what they were doing was wrong, but he let them continue on, and judgment came on Eli because of this. What what were these guys doing? They were in charge of the sacrifices that people brought, and they were just very greedy about them. They couldn't even wait for the sacrifices to to be done. They were were supposed to burn them, and then they were to eat the leftovers, and they would say, no, we need it now. We demand it right now. We want that. We we will have it now. We will have what we want now. They They were using their position to seduce women. They were actually making, as part of the sacrificial system, you need to sleep with us. And so immorality, it's not just immorality and greed, but it's all dressed up in religion. Very, very dark hour. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days, things are going to be bad. People are going to be treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. A form of godliness, a form of religion, a theology, maybe even church-going, but no power to be godly, no power to actually live out a godly life. 
Thursday night, I spoke at our conference, and I gave a, a, a prophetic message. And I, I told the story of 24 years ago when I was in Faustin, Minnesota, and there was a move of God in this land. It started in Toronto, and it had come down to Pensacola, but there was an invitation all over our land, and God was moving in power in our church, and it was, it was a very confusing time because of how present God was and how many things were happening. And, um, but the Lord had told me even before, he said, I want you to lead them into this, but I'm, I'm warning you beforehand, they're not, they're not going to follow it. And, and, and so what happened was, um, I, it wasn't the people that, that thought it was the devil. Those were not the ones that, that, that made me sad. It was those that were, they were, they were in the church. They did think it was God. They just didn't want it to be messy, and they didn't want to lose anybody. And so, God, would you please leave so that we can stay together? And I remember the pain that I had felt in my heart, the sadness that I had felt from heaven that here we were being invited into the the promised land of revival, of an outpouring, and we chose to go back into the wilderness. Well, what I didn't know at the time and only discovered, as I look back, it wasn't just our church. It was all of America. The American church was being offered something at that time, and we said no. And so we went back into the wilderness. And the devastation that has come spiritually to this land in the last 24 years, I gave all the statistics on on, on Thursday night, that for, for six decades, we had church attendance steady in America. Since the late 90s, it has declined 20%. The number one growing religion in America is no religion. There is a massive rise of atheism and agnosticism in this land. But perhaps the most troubling statistic is that those that do say they're Christians, that do attend church, their morality is almost identical to the world. The way they actually live out their lives, the actual values, the actual morals that they're keeping are very similar to the world. A form of godliness, but no longer the power to be godly. Well, actually, the message was very hopeful because I told about a year and a half ago, God said it's, it's time again to go into the land. It, the, the God, there's another Kairos time where God is calling us to go into revival. Um, I'm not going to preach that message. You can listen to it. But it, it, it's, a dark, it's a dark time. A dark time in Israel and a dark time in America. And the third reason why it was a dark time in Israel, 1 Samuel 3.1, it says that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. How can an all-loving God who loves to speak, who loves to, to commune, he created us for communion with himself, how can the word of the Lord become rare when God is who he is? Here's the, here's the difficulty. When people stop listening for God, God will stop speaking. If all people want to do is talk, and all people want to do is tell God what to do, God, God will pull back. 
God's word must be valued. We must put a high value on God speaking. The more people that are actually listening for God, the more God will speak. So the word of the Lord was very rare in those days. And folks, if there's ever been a day in America where people want to talk and don't want to listen, it's this day. Lots of people have opinions. Lots of people want to give you their opinions. There's very little listening going on. And God is inviting his church to begin by listening, not talking. Why? The word of the Lord changes everything. I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But something happened to the early heavens and the earth. I, be, I believe it was Lucifer's rebellion and, and the whole demonic thing and this earth got cast back into darkness. And when we find the earth, it is uh, tohu vabohu. It is void and without form. It is darkness and chaos are over the face of the earth. But that's not the whole story. That's not all that's happening. It's not just darkness and chaos. The Spirit of the Lord is brooding. The Spirit of the Lord is hovering over all of the darkness and the chaos, waiting for what? The Word of the Lord. And then God said, let there be light. And boom, the Holy Spirit makes it so. God said this. God said, God said, God said. And it was good. Everything God does is good. And all of a sudden, God's beauty starts transforming that which was dark and chaotic. His order comes into the mess that the earth was. Then we know the story of Um, Adam and Eve falling, and then eventually the whole earth is going that way, and so judgment comes, and Noah's left, and then once again, sin starts taking over, and in chapter 11 of Genesis, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. Babel means confusion. And once again, the earth is in darkness and confusion. And, And the chapter 11 ends with this, that there was a man named Abram who had a wife named Sarai, and Sarai was barren. And it's not just Sarai that's barren. The whole earth is barren, spiritually. But then chapter 12, verse 1, says this, and then God said, and then God spoke. God came into the chaos, into the darkness, and he said, Abram, Abram, leave your home country. Go out to a land that I will show you. I will, I will make you great. I will make your name great. I will make your nation great. And I will make you a blessing in all of the earth. In fact, in your seed, one born of you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. That was a promise of Christ coming. But it all started with God speaking. The value of the voice of God. So that brings us to my last point, Hannah's story. The Bible says this about Hannah. She doesn't have a medical condition that has left her barren. God himself has closed her womb. This is a sovereign barrenness. And so she's sad. She's very sad. For a number of reasons. One, um, 
having children is a, is a delight in itself. It was a sign of God's blessing in those days, so she doesn't have that little thing. And then she's got this rival, Penina, who keeps bothering her, and Penina has all kinds of kids. She's the other wife, and, and there's this little competition. And so she is depressed, and she's sad, and she's, she's God, why aren't you giving me a kid? God, I want a kid. God, I want a kid of my own. God, I, I, I'm t- tired of taking care of every, other people's because I want my own kid. And then something happens in Hannah when she comes to the temple on this year. It's the same old, same old, same old. And then all of a sudden, there is a change in her prayer. Listen to what Hannah prays from deep within her. This sovereign barrenness has caused this deep cry, this groaning from deep within. And here's the new prayer. Father, give me a child, give me a son, so that I have something to give to you. You give him to me, and I will give him back. It will be enough for me that I have something to give back to you. This is intense. Eli thinks she's drunk because it's so intense. It is so uninhibited, this prayer, even though it's not verbal. She is, she is clearly in this moment and she says, I'm not, I'm not drunk. I'm deeply, deeply troubled. And then Eli says these words, may the Lord answer your request. The word of the Lord comes to Hannah. And we know she agrees with it, just like Mary did. Because the Bible says, when she left that place, she was no longer sad. She's not even pregnant yet. Everything looks the same. But God spoke. God spoke. And she agreed with the word of the Lord. And all of Israel changed because of the fruit of God speaking and of Samuel being born. There's a young man here today. Um, I have received his permission to tell a little of his story. He, we got together a couple weeks ago. He said, let me just tell you my story. He said, April 24th. April 24th. I said, tell me what happened on April 24th. He said, my life was completely out of control. I was a mess. I was drinking, getting high, all the time, not just a one-timer, but kind of as a lifestyle. I'm living with my girlfriend. We are driving home, and I'm, I'm just beyond myself. I think we're coming to the turn. So I reach over and take her car and ram it right into the curb and gutter. Both tires go flat, but we're close enough to our house. They're living together at the time to get into the garage, and we pull it into the garage. And the next morning, April 24th, he wakes up. He's in the shower. And he has this deep, deep cry to God. He says this, I'm done. God, I'm done. I'm done with my life. I'm done. I have... 
I have not, I can't go on like this. And what happened next was the very presence of heaven started engulfing him. And he felt the warmth of God like he was caught up in God. And it's not, it doesn't always happen like this, but this is how it happened for him. And he, he said, you can tell it how it is. He gave all of his alcohol away. He flushed all of his pot down the toilet. He hasn't looked at porn since then. He said, he, I actually haven't even sworn since then. Thursday night, he was here. He was called up by Ted Gary. God said that there's an anointing for an evangelist upon his life. One life. Deep, deep cry. No longer about make my life better, but God, I, I'm done with my life. And God came and has given him something that he can now give back to God. Now his former girlfriend, she was in the first service. Let me tell you something. She was at all the Freedom Fighter meetings as well. She, in, in a very different way, because he's very out there, she's very quiet, but in, a, in, in very much the same way, all in, wholly surrendered. I'm done with my life, God. Now, what do you have, God? I want to talk to you in closing about the economy of heaven. This is 1 Samuel chapter 2, 21. The Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. So she says, God, give me something. I'm done with me and my life and what's making me happier said. Give me something that I can give to you. So God gives her a child, one son, and she takes this one son, all she has, and she gives everything she has to God. And remember the principle, when you give everything to God, God gives everything he has back to you. And all of a sudden, that womb opens, and she has three other boys and two other girls, and she gets this family. This is the economy of heaven. It works very different than Earth's economy. Earth's economy works on fear. You got to get yours first. You got to get it. You got to hold it. You got to grab it. You got to protect it because there's only a limited resource on this earth. And God's economy is different than this. Tom Alexander referenced it a couple weeks ago, just in passing. It, even in the church, it's been taught in some places that. We, we give so that we can get. And he said, no, no, that's not heaven. That's not heaven's economy. Heaven is, heaven's economy is this. We get so that we can give. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 7. 
Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. So here's, here's, here's the principle. God himself is gracious. He is generous. He is love. For God's the love that he gave. God is a giver. He's not just a giver. He's a cheerful giver. He loves giving. He loves to pour out. He loves to bless. It is part of who he is. So he's wanting to raise up disciples that are like him. And so he makes these promises. You, you, you put me first. You give me your first and you give me your best. And I will continue to give to you so that not just that you have all of your needs met, but that you will have an abundance for every good deed. Here's why. What you get is your living. But the way heaven records your life is by what you give. What you get is a living. What you give is your life. And heaven wants to give you a rich life. So it wants to get your eyes off of just having my needs met and having enough for tomorrow and the next day and the next. I want to give you a, an attitude where you are available to whatever comes into your hand. Wh wh whether it is social, spiritual, emotional, financial, however it is, that you are free to give. I want you to not hold on to what you have, but I want you to open your hands and give it to me so that I can give you everything I am. I'm going to read a story to illustrate this. This is in 1 Kings chapter 17, 12 through 16. But she said... This is the widow at Zarephath. As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you have, as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first. And bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain in the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. So here's the story. There is a famine in the land, and it is so bad that this lady has one more meal left. Not only does she only have a little bread and a little oil, she has no access to more bread and oil. She is absolutely convinced, me and my son, this is our last meal, and then we will, we will just wait to die. And the word of the Lord comes to her and says this, it seems so mean. Take the bread and the oil and make a meal and give it to me. God says, give me 
everything you have. And then he gives a promise. And I will give you everything I have. God is limitless. <laughs> so she makes her this little meal and she gives it to the man of God. And then God touches the oil and the flour with his extravagance. And it never runs out. Give me everything you have. And it, it can be very offensive up front. God, I ba- I'm barely getting by. I'm barely there. I'm not, and, and God says, no, no, trust me in this. God, this boyfriend is all I have. You know my identity. How could I lose him? There's no one else. God says, give me that boyfriend. Let go of him. But, but what about... God, I've given you everything else, just not the boyfriend. God, is, God always wants the thing you don't want to give him. What is the thing God most wants? The thing you most don't want to give him. The thing your identity is most linked to. He's going to come and he's going to ask for it. Oh, but not that. Anything but that. God says, no, that. Because if I have that, I have everything. And now I am free. You've just freed me. You've given me everything you have. Now I'm free to give you everything I have. That's why it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. The paupers, those that have absolutely nothing. The beggars, those who have been reduced to nothing. Now God can give them everything. God can give them the whole kingdom. Because they've, they've got nothing in their hands that they're holding on to. Pastor Tom, what, what possible difference can one person make? All of Israel's in sin. All of Israel is in darkness. All of Israel is under this corrupt religious system. How, how, what, what's, what's it going to make a difference with one man? Read the story. All of Israel has changed because of one woman who prayed and the son that came in answer to prayer. Let me tell you about America right now. For America right now, the church is inconsequential. We had to have a lawsuit for public health to even say we were an essential service. We, we got shifted to non-essential. The Catholic Church had a, had a lawsuit that they won that put the church back into essential. But that just, it's just reflective of how our society, the church is nothing. Listen to me. What the church, what is being said about the church right now is exactly what the disciples said about the 5,000 men, the crowd. It it, it says there were 5,000 men, which means there there had to be at least 15,000 people because women and children were not counted, just the 5,000 men. So there's a crowd of 15,000. And this little boy brings these five loaves and two fish. And the disciples immediately say, what? This is so inconsequential. This is, what? You're going to feed two people? What, what is this among a vast crowd like this? And Jesus says this. Just bring it to me. Bring me everything you have. And he takes the bread and he takes the fish. And he breaks it and gives thanks. And all of a sudden, 
heaven comes and touches earth and everybody eats. All 15,000 eat and there's 12 basketfuls left over. Well, what could I possibly give, Pastor Tom? What, I'm just one person. What could I possibly do? You, you, you're missing it. It's not about what you can do. It's that when you give away everything to God, that you're going to get everything from him. And now God is freed. What can one person do? Oh, change a nation. What about one church? Well, well this is just a small little drip in, the, in, the, in all of the churches in the land, all the things going on. What could one church do? Well, what if one church was all in? What if, what if it wasn't about our church? What if it was about us letting go of our church? And saying, Jesus, Jesus, do, we're all in. Do what you want to do in this church. What about one region? What could one region do? I believe, God, what we're praying for, guys, is not just this church, but for this region. The message I gave Thursday night, I will be speaking in November at Lighthouse, which is uh, Marcio Sierra's church. We're doing a pulpit exchange. He'll be preaching here. I'll be preaching there. I'll be preaching it in later November to Mount Zion. Marcus Allen, pastor friend. He's going to be speaking here. I'm going to be speaking there. It'll be the same message because God's not just, it's not about city church. It's about his church in this region. Say, Pastor Tom, what could, what possible, what if God does send revival and awakening to this region? What, what is that for the whole nation? Well, here, here, here's the truth. If God does revival and awakening in Madison, all over this nation, pastors and churches will say this. If it can happen in Madison, Wisconsin, it can certainly happen here. <laughs> I, can't think, I can't think of a place that would be more unlikely. It, and they'll tell their people, if, guys, if this could happen, in, if Madison isn't too big for God, too hard for God, too dry for God, too liberal for God, if, if God can move in Madison, cheer up, folks. He can move anywhere. Amen. So I'd like the worship team to come. We're going to have communion together. Would you mind standing to your feet? If you're able... There is a trick to opening these communion cups. I don't know the trick. So I will wrestle with this again, but you've you, you got to be very careful to get just the top little layer of plastic to get that bread out. Boom. Bread's out. Now is when it gets difficult. Okay, you just kind of break that seal, and then you pull... What's difficult is not spilling it when you're trying to open it. Okay, there goes the cup. There we go. Beautiful. So the Apostle Paul says this. Before you have communion, take a time to examine your own heart because communion is when we celebrate that Jesus gave everything for us. And what Paul says is what we need to examine is our response to him giving everything for us. Are we responding to that? Are we 
just giving lip service or are we truly giving our everything back to him? Now, this is a funny thing because no one else can judge this. You're not all in because you raise your hands or because you dance or because you you try to witness to people. No, being all in is actually, only God knows whether you're all in. So you might be able to convince me you're all in, but who am I? This is about God. God knows. God knows what's really going on. Sometimes zeal is is us trying to uh, show, hide something that we're holding back. So you you can't even go by that. Now, here's the other thing about being all in, being wholehearted. I don't think we can do it ourselves, honestly. I actually think the Holy Spirit has to help us. Did you notice that his name is the helper? (laughs) A lot of times we think Christianity is like, well, God does his part and I do my part. I got news for you. We need help with our part. (laughs) And so that's why we don't have to be afraid to look into our heart or to let the Holy Spirit identify places we're not all in. Because the reason why he's pointing them out is not to condemn us. Because he just wants us to agree with him and then ask for help to become all in. And so could we just pause for a moment before we have the bread and the cup? Father, in Jesus' name. You are so, so good and so generous. And you're so cheerful to give yourself away to us. It's amazing. But Lord, you do, because Jesus gave everything, you do ask for everything. And so Lord, would you go into our hearts deeply And if there's been something we've been holding out on, some area that we've been holding on to, would you expose it right now? We just want to come into agreement and say, Jesus, you're right, you're right. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. And Holy Spirit, you know, without your power, without your grace, I'll go right back to it. Because it's just the way of the human heart. Holy Spirit, would you come and bring your fire? Would you burn away the power that that has had over me? And Holy Spirit, would you help me to be all in? Would you help me to give everything in my hand so that I can receive everything in God's hand for me? On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. Could we eat together? When the supper was ended, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. And it's going to be poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Then he said, take and drink. Let's drink together. Guys, we're going to do one song together and then I'll come and pray to end our service. Bless you.
So guys, the five loaves and the two fish, they're the little things that we actually have right now. That we could actually do something. It's in our power to be kind. It's in our power to serve someone. Instead of just thinking about what's, how somebody can serve me or what, how I'm being treated, to, to, to take what's ours. And instead of waiting for somebody to do something for me, to start giving now small things. And guys, when God joins those small acts of generosity, it's like a key of the kingdom that opens up people's lives and hearts. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, as we go from this place today, You said to Abraham, this is how it's going to work. I need you to leave everything familiar and go. He doesn't even tell him where to go, just to the land I will show you. Go to a relationship with me. Just, just be absolutely dispossessed of everything secure for you right now. And I want you to go out and just be in this relationship with me. And then I will give you everything I have. I will make your name great. I will give you a great nation. And I will make you a blessing to the whole world. So, Father, you have us here today with the help of the Holy Spirit. You have us. You have us individually. You have us as a church. We're praying for our whole region that you would would have us as your own. So, Father, I pray your richest, most abundant blessing on each one. Bless us, God. And then as we go, Father, would you make us a blessing? Lord, we're in this sovereign shutdown right now. Would you you get out of us the prayer that you've been waiting for us to pray? It's not just about our bad situation that we want better, but God, give us something in this time that we can give back to you that will change the whole world. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day today, a great week. Um, As always, unfortunately, in this time, We need you to fellowship outside the doors. We're going to open up all the doors, so we want you to exit. Um, And if you want to talk, talk out there. If you want to get prayer, get prayer out there. God bless you, and have a great week.